Today we're going to continue our study in the book of 2 Corinthians, so if you would turn there. And we're going to be picking up in the middle of chapter 11, and it would be good to review uh, some of the concerns that the Apostle Paul had uh, for the church in Corinth. And his primary concern is actually wrapped up in two very strong emotions, jealousy and fear. And he's jealous because he betrothed the church, the Corinthian church, to one husband, Jesus Christ, and he's intent on presenting to Christ a pure virgin bride, which is the church. So let me refresh you a little bit about Jewish wedding customs. Uh, After the arrangement had been made between a father and a suitor, uh, the young man would go off to fulfill his obligations, to fulfill his end of the agreement. And during this time, he wouldn't see the bride, but after he'd completed uh, his part of the contract, he would send the best man to go ahead to let the bride know that she should be preparing herself because he was coming. And from the first part of chapter 11, we know that Jesus is the groom and the church is the bride and the Apostle Paul is the best man and he's ready to help the bride so that she is ready for the groom. But in this case here, Paul finds that, not all, that he's the, not the only one who's gone after the bride. In fact, there are other men who have, and he's afraid that these other men um, have stepped in and are actually leading the church, leading the bride away from the true groom, Jesus. These false apostles are not doing this forthright, but under the mask of helping Jesus. But they're telling the bride about a slightly different Jesus, one who's a little bit more presentable, one who's a little bit nicer, and one... um, and one who doesn't make such difficult demands for his bride. And so, of course, the Corinthian church finds this Jesus a little bit more appealing. But Paul, being a good best man, isn't going to sit back and watch what happens. He's been trying relentlessly to get the bride back to preparing herself for the true groom. And it's been a nasty fight so far, but he's unwilling to give up. And he's unwilling to give up for two reasons, because his love for the bride, and his responsibility to the groom. And so how is he going to convince the bride that these false friends, these false apostles, who claim to be Jesus' friend, are really leading her astray? Well, he knows that these false friends are bragging about themselves. Instead of telling the bride how wonderful her future husband is, they're boasting in themselves. They can't keep quiet about how good they look or how good of a friend they are to the groom. And sadly, the bride is starting to think uh, that these friends are right. But Paul comes along and tells her to snap out of it. How does he do this? Well, he knows it's silly and that it's almost ludicrous, but he is going to brag himself. Since they're boasting about themselves, he's going to show the bride how incredibly vain this is by boasting in himself He's acknowledged that this is a seemingly senseless way of trying to bring the bride back, but he has to show these false. uh, He has to show that these false apostles are so perverse, and he doesn't want the bride to fall for their tricks again. Only when she sees her folly and she sees theirs will she be unwilling to speak with them any longer. Imitation may be the sincerest form of flattery. But the Apostle Paul makes it the most profound type of mockery in this passage. Let's turn now to 2 Corinthians chapter 11, 
verses 16 to 33. Again, I say, let no one think me foolish, but if you do, receive me even as foolish, so that I also may boast a little. What I am saying, I'm not saying as the Lord would, but in this foolishness, in this confidence of boasting. Since many boast according to the flesh, I will boast also. For you, being so wise, tolerate the foolish gladly. For you tolerate it if anyone enslaves you, anyone devours you, anyone takes advantage of you, anyone exalts himself, anyone hits you in the face. To my shame, I must say that we have been weak by comparison, but in whatever respect anyone else is bold, I speak in foolishness. I am just as bold myself. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they descendants of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I speak as if insane. I more so, in far more labors and far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. At night and day I've spent in the deep. I've been on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I've been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. Who is weak without my being weak? Who is led into sin without my intense concern? If I have to boast, I will boast of what pertains to my weakness. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus, he who is blessed forever, knows that I am not lying. In Damascus, the ethnarch under Aratus the king was guarding the city of the Damascenes in order to seize me, and I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall, and so escaped his hands. This is the word of the Lord. Now let's take a more thorough look at this fight that's going on between Paul and the Corinthians, because Paul's really getting into it. It's as if he's saying, what I'm about to do isn't commendable by any means, so don't judge me by this practice of boasting. But if you are going to judge me, at least give me the same attention and platform that you've given to these false apostles. Boasting isn't exemplary conduct for Christians, and yet I'm just mimicking these deceitful workers who in their swollen pride promote themselves with every word and every deed. And since they brag continually about all of their accomplishments and want everyone to see their appearance of piety, I'm going to do the same. So it's clear that by this, Paul is not showing himself to be an example to the Corinthians. He doesn't expect them to proclaim openly and at length all the difficulties that they've faced for Christ. He's not saying that this is boasting in the Lord. He's not saying that, that, that boasting is recalling a long list of adversities suffered for Christ and his kingdom. This is not boasting the Lord. It's not what the Lord means when he says through Jeremiah, let not a wise man boast of his wisdom and let not the mighty man boast of his might. Let not a rich man boast of his riches, but let him who boasts, boast of this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on the earth. For I delight in these things, declares the Lord. Here we understand that we're not to boast in what God has done through us, but we praise God for who he is and subsequently how he has blessed us. He shows us his love while we're sinners, and so we rejoice. He proves his justice to those who walk in paths of righteousness, and then we're glad. 
This is boasting in the Lord, and it's, it's almost synonymous for, for praising God, for praising Him for His character, for praising his, Him for His works, and especially those works which He does in weak men. So it's clear that Paul isn't set an example by boasting in his accomplishments or his appearance. In fact, Paul wants nothing to do with this type of boasting. It's contrary to his every inclination, it's contrary to his rationale, his, his own sanity, and even seems contrary to the very faith that he's proclaiming. And so he spends much time to assure the Corinthian church that he understands, look, this is boasting, I know it, it's okay. I understand boasting is bad, and he even compares this boasting to foolishness in verse 17. And so it's evident that Paul is averse to this kind of bragging because he knows that it would take away glory from the Lord Jesus. And so he mimics the false apostles in order to cut off their ministry to the Corinthians by revealing how preposterous their pride is when they boast in themselves. And so he acts like them to show that these ridiculous practices are done by deceitful workers. And we know this kind of thing that he's doing very well. It's called parody, right? And so if there's a movie, um, and then it's an original movie, and then there's a parody of that movie, both of them will have uh, the same manner and the same style, but the content is changed to make fun of the original. And so you can take a documentary, for example. Both the original and the parody will have someone who narrates the film, and they'll be presenting information uh, that will include interviews and surveys and discussions. But the parody is not to be taken seriously. It's to ridicule the original film. I remember being in high school when a number of horror movies came out, and uh, some of them were Scream 1 and 2, and then uh, movies like I Know What You Did Last Summer. And shortly after that, uh, movies came out with uh, titles like this. Shriek if you know what I did last Friday the 13th, right? It's, it's absurd, and the movie goes over, over the top and presenting how dramatic and silly these original horror films were. And the Apostle Paul's doing the same thing here. He's trying to show the Corinthians that boasting in the false apostles isn't worthy of their time or attention. So, what are these false apostles boasting in? How are they leading the people astray? I mean, Paul credits the Corinthians with knowing that boasting is wrong. He gives them that credit. So how have these false apostles been able to claim to follow Christ and yet be servants of Satan? Paul says that they boast according to the flesh, which is they boast in seeking glory from men. Their aim is to attract men to follow them by way of their charming appearance or by admiring their accomplishments, what they've done. And so, who finds these things charming and appealing? And it's those of us who, with worldly eyes, have looked upon them and not seen as God sees. Samuel was commanded not to look at Saul's appearance or at the height of his stature because he was rejected by the Lord. 1 Samuel 16:7 says, Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And we're no different. We're no different from Samuel, from any of the others in his time. We'd like to look on someone who looks really good. We'd like a pastor to be tall and handsome and to be well-spoken, to be well-spoken of by many people. And it would be better yet if, uh, if that pastor, that person, that leader up front were an attractive woman, 
right? How many public positions that were commonly held by men have now been replaced by women? Look at Aaron Andrews on ESPN. Look at uh, all the news reporters. Look at the, listen to the voices on the radio. They're all women. Why? And this has nothing to do with ability. It's because women are prettier, they're softer, they're nicer, and all around they're just more attractive, and so they're more appealing to us. They entice men to lust, and then they provoke women to jealousy. So it's this perfect cycle. Scripture says that man is the glory of God and woman is the glory of man. So of course we'd rather see faces of women because it appeals to our pride and wanting to see the glory of man. And so it's no wonder that our infatuation with images today corresponds with our age of feminism. And so we should all be really wary of looking to men and women who appeal to our lusts by their good appearance. Now, I'm not saying we just exclude those who are uh, physically fit or attractive. Um, Many of these things can't be changed, but they can be highlighted, right? Think about a man wearing makeup for a photo shoot to pin a professional picture on the back of his book. It's silly, isn't it? A man wearing makeup. And so we should always be wary when we see these glossy faces, whether they're in television, uh, whether they're... Um, on the websites, whether they're on the back of books or posters, any type of visual media, we should be skeptical when we see these glossy photos. And it's not just appearances that uh, the false apostles peeled to the Christians, uh, the Corinthians with, it's their accomplishments. The, The false apostles sought glory from men by what they had done, what they had achieved. And so underneath the name of the speakers, the authors, the performers... They have a resume of all of their successes. It highlights who they know, where they were educated, how many degrees they have, how many awards they've won, where they've been asked to speak, who uh, they've been asked to speak with, where they're asked to perform, who's into them, who's following them on Twitter, how many friends they have on Facebook. And each of these things about, is about bragging in their successes in view of the world. It's about being well-known. It's about being popular among men. And so these false apostles were celebrities, and the Corinthians were their fans. And in our daily lives, we can, we can see this easily. For anyone who uses the Internet, you can see this uh, on every website you go to. Because now, everywhere you go, there are links where you can click and you can like something. And it doesn't matter what it is. And so for you who are unfamiliar with this practice, it's, it's basically something that shows that you approve of a particular idea or a comment or a picture or a website. And basically it's like you giving a nice big thumbs up to whatever content you're approving of. And so the whole World Wide Web is this giant uh, promotion machine And so you can glory in the flesh of men because you can say, oh, I follow so-and-so. I I like uh, this idea. I'm into that music. And you can align yourself. You can begin to define yourself by uh, these ideas, by men. So you can glory in flesh. You can glory in men because you see that, oh, well, I like them. I'm kind of like them. And so you connect yourself to them. You promote yourself by them. 
And sadly, they gained fame, and so you gained fame. And then everybody's happy. So you connect yourself with them. You say, I like them. And then a lot of people like them. And then you're part of the cool group who likes whatever it is that you're into. And so you can boast in those things and you can gain glory from those things. And think about men um, who do the same. Uh, It's no different today. There are men who seek to gain a following, who seek to promote themselves, promote their ministries, promote promote their conferences, their books, their music, their organizations, coffee, glasses, and it's endless. The list is endless. Which, um, which you could go on and on promoting yourself. And many, and the most difficult thing is that sometimes these things are done under the guise of serving Christ in His ministry. And it's Christ who should get the glory, and they're taking away from Christ's glory. It's all about their vain glory. It's all about their self-promotion. And the thing is, is that we're tempted to jump in and to uh, be like them because. That means that we can be cool too. I mean, if the world is going to despise us because we're Christians, we profess faith in Christ, and they're going to reject us, we need to find pride in something. And so, well, let's find uh, a popular author or speaker or a popular idea that's within the Christian community. That way, we can still have some kind of semblance of respect and honor. And so even within the Christian community, we begin to um, gather ourselves around Uh, famous men, famous ideas, famous music, things that we can find some glory in. And it's not only that we're tempted to take ourselves and align ourselves for glory within the Christian community, but even today in the church, it's sadly come to the point where pastors are praised because they can uh, be friends with the world. Not just that they're uh, popular within the Christian community, but that they can gain recognition and following with the world. And in our day, it's seen that this is um, one of the greatest accomplishments that that a Christian leader can do, is that he can gain recognition and respect within the Christian community, and then be a part of the world, be recognized by secular leaders, be praised by them, And so he can be a follower of Christ and make common cause with them. And then he's really an apex of godliness. Then he's really arrived. Why? Why does he seek this glory? So he can glory in men, in the praise of men, and not glory in God. It's so we can boast about our own prestige and forsake the cross on which Christ spread his arms. He had a glorious crown. He had a crown of thorns. He did have a crown. It was one of thorns. And the thorns poked his forehead so that he bled. And then he spread on his arms and he died. And our Lord's life wasn't one of glory. We sing man of sorrows, what a name. Jesus was a man of sorrows. He went through many difficulties. He bore his cross here. And I want to make an observation from his life that the Apostle Paul here exemplifies, and that's this. The condition that the Lord Jesus had before his resurrection was one of humiliation, and afterwards it was glorification. And we too will be raised to new life in him, but our time 
has not yet come. We're still in this period of humiliation. Jesus himself taught us that his servant is not above his master. And so how could we think that our time for glory is now? How could we boast even in the things that God has done through us by his grace when we have yet to leave this position of humiliation? The Christian life is one under the cross, one bearing the cross in affliction, in shame, and in grief. And so there's no glory for us now. We have to boast in our weaknesses. And boasting in this weakness is evident in the Apostle Paul's catalog of accomplishments. Paul called his, foolish, uh, his boasting foolish not only because it was silly to boast, and all the Corinthians knew that, but because his accomplishments they were despised, and they brought contempt upon him. No, one, no one's going to look at Paul, look at this list, and think, oh, wow, he's a, he's a great man. He's something to write home about. Nobody would even want to claim him. He was wanted by law. He was scorned by his own people, and he was wounded with scars upon scars. Do you ever think about that? That if he's been beaten so much that he has scars upon scars... Can you imagine putting Paul's beaten, worn, and hungry face on the back of a book cover? Can you imagine them making a sketch of the brand marks on his back and attaching it to the letter of the Galatians? He says, I bear on my body the brand marks of the Lord Jesus. And doesn't that give you an honest picture of the man? Doesn't that de- don't those things define him more than any denomination would, more than any seminary would? What about 39 lashes? Does that do it? Does that define him? Does that tell you who he is? Does that tell you who he's devoted for devoted to? And in seeing these things, you know who Paul's devoted to. He's not serving himself, he's not promoting his ministry. He is a servant of the Lord Jesus, and his devotion is undeniably clear. And that's what this is all about, isn't it? Paul's concerned for the Corinthians' apostasy because he sees that they've been led astray by servants of Satan, and he's trying to bring them back to serving Christ. He's intent on establishing a pure and simple devotion to Christ. So what is it that gave Paul this strong an uncompromising devotion. How was Paul able to endure all that he did? Why would he put himself in danger like he did? Well, it's simple. It's the gospel. And he knew the gospel really, really well. He knew when false apostles came in and were preaching another Jesus, he could call them out on it. He knew when they were teaching another gospel. And so sirens were going off in his head. And so he's warning the, the Corinthian church He knew that true apostles wouldn't bring glory to themselves. If they knew, if those false apostles knew how utterly sick with sin they were, and that they were condemned before God, it would have been impossible for them to gloat as they had. And that's what we are too. We are sinners. We are enemies of the Lord of glory. And so we've lived our lives 
seeking glory for ourselves. We've sought fame for ourselves when it was God who made us and God who's given us everything that we have. And yet while we were rebels rebelling against him, he sent his son to be humiliated by us. We hung the Lord Jesus on the tree. In our songs, we sing, I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. If we were there, we would have helped the Jews convict him and hang him. Yet Jesus bore the punishment we deserved. We deserved to die. We deserved to be put to death. And it was a heinous death that he paid for our sins. And so Jesus gave his life for ours. And then he was raised from the dead by the power of his father. He suffered the shame and the mockery. And then he was reigned so that he would receive the crown of glory. He entered into the Father's presence and then he sat down at the right hand and so he is worthy of worship now and he will ever be worthy of worship forever. And so this has been accomplished. That means that our debts have been paid. That means that our sins have been forgiven. That means that we're no longer under condemnation. And that means that you don't have to be a slave to defending your name any longer. Meaning, You know that you're a sinner. You don't have to defend yourself. You don't have to seek fame and glory for yourself. You know that you you shouldn't have any. And then it should all go to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he died on our behalf. And this is the kind of love and commitment that Paul saw from God. He knew that God had loved him. And so he would endure the same things. He would follow Jesus in this train of suffering, in this train of shame. And these simple truths gave him the strength knowing that Christ laid down his life first. And so Paul was a pastor. He laid down his life. So what is your view of a pastor's devotion? It should be clear to you from this text that A pastor is a servant of God in his church. We talked earlier about Jesus um, being the groom and Paul wanting to secure devotion with the church to Jesus. And so he was working for God and for the church. And so we know that uh, this kind of service was sacrificial, that he had to give up things, that he had to lay down his life. He had to suffer persecution And he lived in such a way that he forsook the ease and comfort that he could have had. Paul wasn't in danger of rivers because he hid in the church office. He took his devotion out, his devotion took him out into the world and into harm's way. His commitment to the furtherance of the gospel also brought him a warrant for his punishment. And so the question is, would you despise your pastor if if he were jailed for Christ's sake? would you ever tell your family at home that, uh, yeah, it's been a difficult week for our church, our, our pastor was put in jail? Or would you hide that with shame? And I'm not saying you should glory in it and tell the world, but would you be ashamed of a pastor who loved Christ, who was faithful, and yet opposed by the government and put in jail? Would you avoid attending a church where the pastor was on the government's most wanted list for faithfully proclaiming Jesus as Lord. 
And so you have to ask these kinds of questions. There is persecution, and it's coming quicker and quicker than we know from the government and from those who oppose Christ. I mean, it happens in many other countries. Why would we be surprised if it starts happening here? And it should also be noted that the Apostle Paul went without food and drink and sleep. And the reason he lost these things is because he didn't have support of his churches. They stopped supporting him. They threw him out. They left him in the cold. And this was the case for two reasons. First, because he was wanted. He was a wanted man, and so the churches deserted him. And then second, because he was rejected for calling them to repentance and in keeping fruit, or in, in keeping with repentance by bearing fruit. This is why Jonathan Edwards was fired from his church. God sent his spirit to bring about revival in New England. And uh, Edwards gave an account of this that became popular, and so the church became popular. They became famous in a sense. And uh, that ministry continued. Jonathan Edwards continued to preach the gospel. But now that many had been converted, they needed to grow in sanctification. And so he called them not just to be converted, but to continue with the work that God had begun. And that was one of them bearing fruit. They were to continue to bear fruit. And you know what they did? He's gone. They fired him. Why? Because he held up the truth that men are to continue in sanctification. This is what Stephen preached on last week. We continue to bear fruit. We're commanded to obey God and continue in bearing fruit. Edwards wasn't the only one. John Calvin faced similar contempt and he wrote that this is, this is just always the case with pastors. It always has been and it always will be. He says this, It has been the invariable custom and will be to the end to resist contumaciously, that's rebelliously, the servants of God to get enraged on the least occasion, to grumble and murmur incessantly, to complain even of a moderate strictness, and to hold all discipline and abhorrence of pastors who are faithful. And then... While on the other hand, they put themselves under servile subjection of false apostles, impostors, and mere worthless pretenders who give them liberty to do whatever they want and they patiently submit to and endure these pastors and any burden that they choose to impose on them. And so true pastors always face the difficulty of the people rejecting them. And yet they have to endure But if you look around, there aren't too many uh, pastors in this room. And so what is simple and pure devotion to you? What does that look like for you? Now, I'll say up front that not every believer is expected to face the kind of trials that Paul did for his faith. That's just not, not the case. It's not expected that each one of us will have to face those kinds of difficulties. But if we were to look at them and categorize them, we can see that there are three different categories uh, verses 23 to 25 speak of Paul's persecutions. Uh, many of these are just plain gruesome. Uh, the Jews had laws that kept a man from getting 40 lashes because they thought it would disfigure him. And since the man is made in the image of God, they didn't want to disfigure that image. 
And so they kept it at 39 lashes, but, you know, they could do 39 at one point, and then later on they could give him another 39. And so he faced great persecution. Verse 26 recounts dangers or the risks that Paul had to endure to complete his ministry. And so he put himself in harm's way. And then in verse 27, he recalls the difficulties of going without sleep, not having anything to eat, and having to sleep on the ground. And again, all these trials don't await us, and we shouldn't necessarily expect them, but it's likely that in some way, we are principally against living a life that would bring about these adversities our way. And so if we were to just look at the adversities in verse 27, we can see some examples. So he says, In labor and in hardships, are you opposed to serving the church when it's difficult and time-consuming? Are you opposed to serving people who are difficult people, maybe draining people? Are you unwilling to serve when it's actually hard, when you actually have to to roll up your sleeves, whether that's physically or caring for someone who is needy and struggling? What about sleep? Are you willing to lose sleep for others? Is your bedtime or your evening with with your wife a more important priority with someone who's struggling? When someone you're working with calls you late at night and you go, and you don't want to take the call, do you go ahead and answer or do you hit the, the off button? Are you willing to lay down your life? What about hunger and thirst and shelter and food? Those are a little bit more difficult because those are things that uh, Paul didn't receive because churches withheld support from him. And so what's our support? Well, we're not pastors, so it's not church payroll. But many of you are supported by jobs. You work. And so the real test here is that would you, or are, the real test here is are you principled about not losing your job for Christ's sake? Are you unwilling to say certain things because you know it will get you in trouble with your boss? Are you unwilling to say things in class that would disturb uh, the classroom setting and the teacher and the, the peace and the agreement that is going on within the classroom? Are you opposed to living out your faith and being salt and light in the places that God has placed you? And again, this isn't a test of faithfulness if you lose your job and don't have support and then come to rely um, maybe on the church for your needs. But all of us have set up little ways that we can still feel like we're being obedient to Christ, but yet we cut corners so that we don't have to face real difficulties that would really impinge upon uh, the things that we have. The food that we have, the money that we have, the home that we have, the family that we have. And so we set up our our, our faith in such a way that we make excuses for ourselves so that we don't have to be faithful, so that we don't have to be salt. Salt is a preserver. It's something that keeps, and it's meant that we are to be salt of the earth, meaning we're to preserve righteousness here on earth, which means if our, you know, if our, our boss is cheating and lying and stealing, well, 
You should be salt and call him to righteousness. And so you face a great difficulty then because the world is corrupt. It is the earth. You're the salt. You're supposed to be different from those you work with. You're supposed to preserve righteousness on earth. And really what this comes down to is, is your devotion public? Is your faith in Christ public? Is it something that you hide at home? I mean, you can't imagine that Paul was facing persecution because he was praying in the, in the closets he made by himself. His faith was public. Do you speak one way with your coworkers another at church? Do you talk about the, the blessings that God has given you with your church family and then go home to your family in Thanksgiving and just say that you're thankful? I, I think this funny illustration, I had some Rastafarian neighbors, they were Jamaican, and, um, and he came over and he said, yeah, man, give thanks, give thanks, um, because I'd, I'd give him some sugar or something. And they like, yeah, man, give thanks. And I'm thinking, who are we giving thanks to? Like, <laughs> this, is, this is silly. But for us to go home with our families and not be thankful to God is, is the same silliness. It's the same foolishness. And really, it's not... It's that we're not willing to be fools for Christ. And so we should speak and act and think as Christians, as we normally do, as we do with one another, but we should do it everywhere. Not just here, everywhere. Grocery stores, homes, families, barber shops, gas stations, wherever. Your faith should be a public faith. And that shows that your devotion isn't to your pride. It's not to your glory. It's not because you get glory from uh, people at church because you, you have a spiritual talk and give thanks to God here at church, but then you glory in the approval of man by going and not speaking of God among non-Christians. And that really shows your devotion. And another way of getting at what you're devoted to is boasting. What do you boast about? What are the things you're proud of? You know, some of you have um, just a very a casual personality, but all of a sudden you'll start talking about something. You get really fired up and you start moving around and you're thinking, who is this guy? Like, what happened to him? And then, you, you know, you hear the words that are coming out of his mouth. And they're just exuding this kind of pride about whatever it is you're talking about. And that's boasting. And it's not wrong for us to have opinions and to like certain things. But when we become devoted to, to something in such a way that we get um, defensive about that thing, if somebody were to say, oh yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm glad you like that band, uh, I like this band, and, and then you say, well, actually my band's better because of this. <laughs> because they have three bass, bass players instead of two, or, or something silly. And you begin to defend. But we all do this, we all boast in things, we all defend certain things, because we want to boast, we want to take fame from whatever it is we're boasting in. We want to gain glory from that thing. And really, 
when we glory in those things, when we boast of things, it tells others that we take pride in our tastes, in our refinements, and we can boast in all kinds of things that are just silly, and they're all meant to represent us. But really, we're looking to boast in them so that we can take glory when they get glory from the world. And we do this so often, um, at least I find myself doing this so often with coworkers. It's like um, they start talking about, um, I use music for an example, they start talking about music they like, and I think, oh, yeah, yeah, I like that music too. I'm not so different from you. I mean, I'm a Christian, but I still like these things too, and, and don't think me weird, and, and you know, I like, I like them as well. And so we go along to get along. And it can be sports, it can be music, it can be ideas, all these things we can boast in. Here, you can boast in how many children you have. We can boast in the appearance of our church building and what it looks like, how small it is or how big it is or how base it is. You can boast in any number of things. We can boast in the worst tall, a small church. We can boast that we're bigger than some churches. We can boast that some churches uh, don't like us or some people don't like us. And all that, again, is just to bring attention to ourselves. Apostle says, if I have to boast, I will boast in my weakness. And we should look at our weaknesses. We should see that God has come to us in our weakness. In Christ, he has seen our sins. He has loved us. He has sent his son for us. And we should glory in Jesus Christ. We should glory in him and in him alone. This is what we were called to. We're called to boast in Christ. Called to glory in him. Let's pray.